Well, good morning again. So what's your story? Uh, we're all living in the middle of a story, aren't we? Uh, some of those stories, I mean, every story contains, for the most part, good parts. The joy, the, the love, those important moments, those important memories. But every story also contains, because we live in the real world, uh, sickness, maybe betrayal, death, pain. So what's your story? Where is your story going? I mean, sometimes you just kind of want to hit the pause button, right? And just say, all right, where's this thing going? I want to, I want to know in advance. And um, in these four messages that we're doing in this series this month, we're going to learn how to answer that question as well as some other questions. Now, we all showed up for church today. And so because of that, I'm making a few assumptions. I mean, you walk through these doors, you you logged on online, you're, you're participating in this service. One of those assumptions that I think I'm safe to make is that at some level, being engaged in the life of the church, we're interested in what this has to say. Like there must be something in the Word of God that's important. That's important to me, that's important to my life. And so we want to try to understand that and, and get a handle on that. So today, what we're going to do at the beginning of this series, tell tell my story. This is my story. At the beginning of this series, we're going to go through the entire storyline of the Bible today. So you're welcome. It is 1133. I'm not going to make any guarantees. There was a temptation I had to call this sermon through the Bible in 30 minutes. That's, there's a lot of ego involved in that statement though. So I kind of I backed off on that. Now, I think you understand, we're not going to cover every single little detail that is in this book, okay? For instance, today, as we go through this, I'm not going to reference Noah's Ark. Kind of a big deal. Uh, David. David is huge in the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter. He's not going to be referenced directly in this message. My goal today is to begin to answer the question, what's my story? What's my story? But more important than that is your ability to understand that this is actually your story. This is your story. Okay, so are you ready? Here we go. God used like 40, roughly 40 people to author and write and pen everything that's in this book. 40 people. Now, the amazing thing about that is when you start really realizing some stuff, those people... They didn't, most of them never knew each other. They lived in different generations and, and over different spans of time. So they, they never even really knew each other. But the most amazing thing about that is they still all wrote in the same storyline. The same storyline, your story, your story. And so we're just going to jump right in. Are you ready? First chapter is Genesis, creation. Creation is chapter one. So it says this in Genesis chapter one. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God made everything, including Adam and Eve. Uh, He created them in his image. God, in his wisdom, gives them the capacity to relate to him, to relate to each other, and to relate to all of creation. Now, I want you to think about this. God, and you know, again, we're not going to go into every detail of the story, so if 
follow along. God did this amazing thing too, where he placed them in this perfect place, the Garden of Eden. This perfect environment where there were literally millions upon millions of yeses and only one no. Only one no. Okay. It was all theirs to enjoy. But the one thing was just don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God was saying, stay pure, stay innocent, stay whole, stay unbroken. Don't eat of that fruit. So how many rules? Just one. Not 10, not yet. Not 75. But the important thing was that rule was there to protect something. That rule was there to preserve them from losing this perfect relationship with God, this perfect relationship, this wholeness with one another. It was there so they'd have a whole perfect relationship with all of creation. All right, you still with me? Now, for that to work, the only thing God really wanted from them was just let him be God. Just let him be God. If they would do that, they would experience perfection and wholeness and peace and more, unbrokenness. But unfortunately, we have chapter 2, brokenness. Chapter 2 is brokenness. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord the God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, nah, no you won't. You surely won't die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will, and here it is, be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So here, Adam and Eve, they butt heads with God over that one rule, but that one rule was not the issue. It wasn't that it was a rule to like ruin their day. It was there to preserve. It was there to protect. They violated that. They, and God allowed them because of his incredible love to have a choice. And they made a choice. At that point, everything became broken. Everything. When Adam and Eve sinned, check this out, their relationship with God, it broke. It suffered a death. I want you to remember that word death. The relationship that they had with each other, that perfect, that harmony, that broke. Their relationship with all of creation, it suffered a death. It's why you and I live in brokenness today, okay? It's, it's the very reason that our world faces sickness, abuse, hatred. It's why in our world we have refugee crises. It's why there's systemic inequality and inequity in racism. There, it, there's why there's starvation, there's greed, there's lust, there's trafficking, there's, there's so much more. It's why people, even religious people, can, can be some of the most caustic people on the planet and say some of the most demeaning things about one another and others. It's because something is broken. You get that, right? Do you not feel that? 
that there's something not right. There is something broken. Something that's broken. Humanity walked away from perfection because of sin. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with creation broke. So years pass, and you have third chapter, promise. So at this point, God, God communicates his desire to restore what was lost. He wants to reclaim what was lost. So God decides one day to choose this guy. He's a nobody. He's a nobody living on the backside of the desert, minding his own business. He chooses this guy, and he decides to make a promise. Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, we know him as Abraham, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Through his offspring, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, in him, in this Abraham and his descendants, all the families of this earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed for Haran. Okay, we're going to dissect this one just a little bit. Okay, so first, okay, God, you're going to make me into a great nation. You're going to use my offspring to make my name great, to get me, you know, to, to create this nation out of me. And I'm 75. Okay, I'm post-retirement age. And I already have zero children. Okay, so there's a couple things stacked against him. Number three, his wife is barren. Okay, so you're going to make this great nation out of me? You're going to do this amazing thing out of me? How is this going to take place? How is that promise going to come to fruition? How are you going to make my name great? Well, how many of you at least knew there was a dude in the Bible named Abraham before you walked in here? Okay, so something must have happened, right? Something took place. Abraham and Sarah, little candlelight, flowers. Luther Vandross? I, I don't know. It's a little soft jazz playing? I, I, I don't know. Somehow in the midst of all this, God pulls this thing off, and a boy named Isaac is born. Isaac, he grows. He has a son. That son's name is Jacob. Jacob grows. Jacob is like, he's the man. He's super prolific, okay? He has 12 sons. 12 sons who are the descendant of Jacob, who is the descendant of Isaac, who is the descendant of Sarah and Abram, Abraham. The 12 sons who make up the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So how was God on that one? God does that stuff. These amazing things. Now, these are a people that he has designed. He is, he is calling these people and raising these people up to work with them and through them to restore what was lost. What became broken? To make it be unbroken. And so time passes. And in the midst of that time, there's a famine that strikes them, okay? And so it drives them, this entire lineage of Abraham, down into the land of Egypt, where there's a guy who's really nervous. He's a really anxious guy, Pharaoh. He's in charge, most powerful man on the planet at the moment, 
okay? He's in charge, and he sees these Hebrews over years, these Israelites, this descendant of Abraham crew, he sees them doing something really, really well. It's what Jacob did, making more Hebrews, okay? So there's a population boom. All of a sudden, some national identities at risk. So Pharaoh does something that's really, really smart. He decides, I'm going to enslave all of you. I need a workforce. So he enslaves all of these descendants of Abraham. A hundred years goes by. Two hundred years goes by. Three hundred years. Four hundred years goes by. And at that 400-year mark, God hears their cry. And so he comes alongside another guy on the backside of the desert, a guy who would have loved to have lived the rest of his life completely unknown, trust me, Moses. He comes alongside of Moses. He introduces himself to Moses, and he explains that, I want you to go now back to Egypt where you came from, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to go up to Pharaoh, and I want you to say, hey, I want you to let God's people go. Let my people go. And Moses says, yeah, that's a really bad idea. I don't talk good. I don't want to do that. So God, God says, listen, Moses, just trust me. Trust me. I'm on a mission. I'm restoring what was lost. Give it a shot. Just trust me. And so, like I said, we're not covering every detail, but through a series of events, only God could pull off. Okay, Pharaoh lets God's people go. Let's God's people go, which immediately leads to the fourth chapter, law. So Moses leads roughly two million people out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, and he's pushing them to a land that he had promised Abraham years ago years ago, this land where he's going to raise up this nation to restore what has been lost. And there's a problem, though. It's been 400 years. <clears throat> so he thinks, I got I to reintroduce myself to my people. So they make a pit stop at a place called Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he sides up again next to Moses. And he says, hey, I want you to go introduce me to these people. My name is I Am, which is a little different, okay? But what it means is this, I want you to tell these people, I am what they need. I am what is needed now. I am what is needed forever. I am your deliverer. I am redeemer. I am your rescuer. I am your provider. I am so complete that you only need me. And the literal translation of it is, I am that I am, that I am. And then, after the introduction is over, God says, all right, here's the top 10. Here's your top 10, okay? Intended to help them, listen closely, relate to him and to each other and to the rest of the world well. Does that sound familiar? 10 laws that were intended to take them to that creation experience so that they might experience some of this unbrokenness. Okay, the top 10. He says, you know what? <clears throat> when it comes to me, man, just don't have any other gods. Not because of my ego, but because you don't need any others. You need me. You need me. I'm enough. I am. And by the way, when it comes to how you relate to each other 
and, and here's ways that you can cherish one another and, and love one another and protect one another, show honor and respect to one another. Do all these things. All these things are meant to preserve something, to help you live this kind of unbroken life where you experience fullness and peace and joy, where we have great relationship together, the top 10. Okay, so how many of you, survey, how many of you have broken one of them? Okay. I ask you this question often. If you're not bold enough to raise your hand right now, that's okay. You're just breaking one of them right now. Okay? That's, one of them is don't lie, and you're lying. How many lies do you have to tell to be called a liar? One. One. Okay? The Bible says all of us have sinned and fall short. All of us have sinned and fall short. But God, and this is amazing, in His loving wisdom, in His commitment to restore us, to see us get back to that place, He made this provision. Whenever you break one of these laws, you're to bring a sacrifice. Okay. I think it's okay to say this. We'll find out later. There's some weird stuff going on in here sometimes, right? Have you ever wondered what in the world is with all the blood flying everywhere and people lighting things on fire and all this sacrifice stuff. It's kind of different. Well, one of those things, one of those things that it does is it reminds us of the garden. Okay. You remember in the garden when brokenness happened? Death, right? In fact, Adam and Eve up to that moment, because they were living in that unbrokenness, they did, not, they did not know pain. They didn't know tears or, or mourning. They didn't know any of that. They, they experienced literal perfection with God and with each other and with all of creation. They had no concept of any of it. But in their sin, when all of a sudden, in their shame and in their nakedness, God actually showed mercy to them, and he covered them with the skin of an animal. I want you to think about that for a second. They'd never seen death. And yet because of their actions, now they're seeing it for the very first time. And it's that death that God is using to cover their nakedness, cover their shame. So God said to these newly freed slaves, look, whenever you sin, whenever you sin, a sacrifice needs to be made to cover your sin. The blood's not going to change the fact that you did it, but it's intended to cover the sin and be a reminder that when we break God's laws, when something happens that violates God's values and His design, something dies. Something dies. Chapter 5. Rebellion. Now, it's so easy to pick on people in the Bible because they're so far removed, we kind of think, from us. The Bible tells us that these descendants of Abraham, they really, really tried. They did. They tried really, really hard, okay? And so I, you got to give them a little bit of credit. But after a while, at the end of the day, they're all human. They're all human. And so after a while, you know, when you're letting God be God, it's kind of nice to every once in a while decide you need to put on his shoes and decide that, you know, I want to decide what's right. I want to decide what I want to do. Why do I have to keep asking God what I should be doing? I want to be the one that decides what truth is. I want to be the one to decide, yeah, that's nice, and I want to taste it. I want to touch it. I want to see it. I want all, all of a sudden, it's nice to be your own God, 
to be your own God. We don't know anybody like that, right? Like anybody we know really well, okay? So what would happen is these Israelites, they would abandon God. I mean, literally, they would just walk away from the one person who's trying to restore them to a wholeness they can't even wrap their brain around, okay? A perfection they can't wrap their brain around, but yet, yet they walk away from God. They abandon the God who is seeking to restore them. And the Bible tells us that Israel begins this cycle that you literally see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Just over and over and over again. They would obey. Hey, we're going to do this thing, God. It's you and me. Let's sing all the best songs. Let's, let's get our Jesus on. Let's do all that stuff. Okay, we're going to do the right thing. But then, uh, it's kind of nice to be God every once in a while, so nobody's looking. So they would rebel. Then they would abandon. And then God would do this thing where he would send women and men called prophets. Prophets and judges and, and all kinds of different people. Literally, the rest of the entire Old Testament is this. God would send these people, these prophets, who would tell the people, knock it off. Don't be a ding-a-ling. That's the Doring translation, okay? Quit doing this stuff. You're walking away from the best deal in your life. Come back. And all of these prophets would come, and they would speak to the people and try to get them, woo their heart back to the heart of God, okay? Over and over and over again. Now, here's what would happen. Normally, the people would return. They would come back to God, but never easily, never. It was always a struggle to get them to come back to God. And usually what would happen is there would be some kind of external thing that would happen, some kind of pain that would all of a sudden wake them up and think, where's God been? Well, he didn't go anywhere. You did. And they come back to God over and over again. In fact, I want you to listen to Nehemiah. Uh, You should read this whole book. Okay, but Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. Let's see if this sounds familiar. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. So you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and in time their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, to that that point, that place. Yet they acted presumptuously, didn't obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he'll live by them, and turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the people of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Okay, that's not just their story. That's my story. That's your story. That's, that's our story. Isn't that not the cycle? When do you draw closest to God? It's when everything's going honky-dory in your life. 
or when you feel pressure, when you feel pain. This is what the Bible says happened with these descendants of Abraham. And then this day comes along where God, uh, he sends one more prophet. And this guy's different. And his message is different too. I wish we had the time. John the Baptist. John the Baptist. His message is different than the rest of the prophets. His message in a nutshell is uh, get ready. Get ready. Your Savior is coming. This cycle, we're not going to do that business anymore. Your Savior is coming. And so now you have chapter 6. Grace. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Okay. So, first of all, it says in there, all. You remember the promise that was made to Abraham at the beginning? All families on earth will be blessed through you. That promise in Genesis 12, anybody related to you would be blessed. John 1, 10 through 14. He was in the world, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of, and here it is, grace and truth. What is the truth? The truth is the law. Jesus was true. He lived true. He never deviated. He fulfilled the requirements of the law perfectly. But he was also full of grace. What does that mean? There's a story that Jesus tells in the Gospels. It's a parable. But in my mind, this parable is the parable that illustrates not just what we're talking about here in grace, what really re-illustrates the entire storyline of Scripture. And it's the parable of the prodigal son. It's in Luke chapter 15. In a nutshell, there's a child. He's created with love and grace around him. There's nothing for him to ever want beyond any of this. It's perfection. Yet, he chose his own way. He chose his own way, and in doing so, his relationship with his father, it broke. His relationship with his community and his family, it suffered death. He squandered everything, and in shame, in shame, he chooses to return to his father to seek mercy. That's not how it works. Usually, though, he's really blown it. So he's coming home, and he realizes the thing that I've earned more than anything, because I have destroyed these relationships, I deserve punishment. I deserve retribution. I deserve anything that's going to come my way, but I'm going to see. I'm going to see if my father will extend to me just some iota of mercy and just let me be one of his slaves. I'm so hungry. I've blown it so bad. And instead what he does is he comes home and his father runs down the lane, grabs him, hugs him, starts crying, says, my long lost son has come home. I can't believe this. We're going to party. Has a party and takes the sinner son, this sinner, this shameful human being, and puts him in the seat of honor at a party. 
Listen, that doesn't make any sense. That's because it's amazing grace. It doesn't make sense. It's nothing that we earn. What's Jesus' point there? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Please don't, please. Grace is getting what we didn't earn. Grace says thank you. (laughs) It's getting what we didn't earn. All have sinned and fall short. We bring, you and I, bring brokenness to the table. That's all we bring. And that brokenness earns death. But if we do come to the table, he sets that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if we will come to that table, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get grace. That should stun us. That that the God who knows who I am, who I've been, what I've seen and tasted and touched and done, that He would see me and invite me to the table to give me grace. That should stun us. A father invites us to the meal prepared by the only one qualified to give us grace, who paid the price to give us grace, a final sacrifice on the cross once for all. Once for all, not to cover our sin, but to cleanse us, to make us new, reborn, to make us whole, to make us unbroken. Okay. If you're participating in communion today, I'm going to ask you to take those elements. Jesus took a very traditional meal, religious traditional meal, and he slapped a new representation on top of it. He gathered his disciples together. He took bread, he broke it, and broken into that bread represents his body, which would be broken for them. He would die for them in their place, for you, for me, a death for a death. But then he took the wine, representing blood in a new covenant. He was making something new, you and me. God was reclaiming what was lost with his beloved, with me, and with you. There was a covenant found in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. I'm going to ask you to take that bread out, and as we partake of the bread today, let it be a reminder to us of the sacrifice that was made for our sin our brokenness, so that we might be reconciled to God. I'm going to ask you to prepare the juice. As we partake of this juice today, may it serve as a reminder of God's amazing grace to never give up on His covenant with us, to pursue us, his covenant people. After Jesus' death and his resurrection, he pulls his disciples together. Just one last time, he gives them essentially marching orders. It's like, hey, this new thing that you've experienced, yeah, you need to take that and run. You need to go tell everybody. Go to the four corners of the earth. 
Because what I've just done is I've unleashed everything. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Spread it. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Tell them to obey everything that I've commanded to you. And listen, I'm going to be with you always, always to the very end of the age. So then you have chapter 7, Spirit. He just said, I will be with you to the very end of the age, and then he turns around and leaves. (laughs) But before he does that, he reassures his disciples. He says to them, look, I'm going to send another to you that's just like me, except I'm not just going to be with you. The Holy Spirit's going to be in you, in you. 1 Corinthians 13, 16, 16 says, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body? is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We like to use that verse when we talk about like going on a diet or something, right? But do you not know that that the Holy Spirit is in you? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God living in you 24-7, growing you from the inside out, trying to help you become more and more like his son Jesus, more and more unbroken in a very broken world. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Listen, while you and I live in this broken world full of pain and tears and tragedy and mourning and sorrow, while we live in this broken world, you and I, through the work of the Holy Spirit, can live unbroken lives. We can. If we will yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, I can, through the Holy Spirit, we talked about it all summer, I can be kind. (laughs) I can be compassionate. I can, I can be slow to anger. I can experience some unbrokenness in my relationships with God, with people, with the world. Our lives can be different through the work of the Holy Spirit and our willingness to allow Him to do that work in us and through us. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't just come do a work in us, The Holy Spirit also comes to do a work through us to rescue other people, to take our unbrokenness to others. In fact, from that moment to today, listen closely, God has groups of these Jesus followers filled with God's Spirit. These people get together on a consistent basis, on a regular basis. They encourage each other. They love one another. They pray for one another. They serve in mission with one another. They spread the gospel together. What did I just describe? The church. I described you. That's the church, literally from the book of Acts to this second right now. Everything describes the church. The work of the Holy Spirit through the church to reach a broken world. To what end? To what end? The last chapter. New creation. Spirit is where we are. New creation is what's coming. It's what will be. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. This passage is my passage. Um, I've been a follower of Jesus Christ since 1992, but I'm going to be honest with you, I never really read or focused on this passage much until my mom died in 2011, 
And then when my dad died in 2018, um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, here it is, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The next next few verses, these next few verses speak to the very thing that our hearts have wanted ever since the beginning, ever since brokenness. He will wipe every tear from their eyes in death. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And then he tells John, this is kind of my favorite part. He tells John, who's writing all this stuff down, he says, Hey, hey. Write it down. (laughs) It's as good as done. It's as good as done. A day is going to come when Jesus returns to fully establish what was lost at the beginning. A new creation. No more brokenness. I'm going to make everything new. And he says in verse 5, John, write it down. Write it down. It's as good as done. Now, we, I said this earlier, there's, listen, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some stuff in here that, whoa, and this is the book of Revelation, okay, and so maybe you've heard some things about the book of Revelation, um, maybe you've heard some stuff about like the end of the world, Armageddon, all that kind of stuff, there's some people who write some really bad books about it, I mean, there's just, there's all kinds of different stuff, so okay, there's there's going to be this thing that's going to drop out of the sky and there's going to be this new earth, a new earth, and God is going to start shouting from, from heaven and, and all this kind of different stuff, smoke, whatever, all this stuff. Kind of sounds like Lord of the Rings, right? So, I mean, it sounds like a fantasy. Let's get back to reality. Let's bring this back to reality. I want to make a proposition to you today. It is. It is reality, okay? Well, how do we know? How do we know? He says, write this down. It's as good as done. How do we know that this is true? Back up a little bit. God comes along, backside of the desert, chooses a nobody, a nobody on the backside of the desert, says, I'm going to make your name great. And today, today, billions of people walking the planet know who this man is. Billions of people all over the world. The three main religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all trace their familial, spiritual, and cultural roots back to 
This one man. Go anywhere in the world. Go to Kabul, Afghanistan. Padir I Ibrahim. That's Persian for Father Abraham. You go to Kabul, Afghanistan and ask that question today. Every hand would go up. How was God on that one? I will make your name great. People will know who you are. Another guy on the backside of the desert, Moses. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Bad idea, bad idea. I don't want to do it. Ends up doing it, and two million people experience a freedom that they have not even remotely dreamed of in generations. They have freedom. How did God do on that one? He says, look, if you will listen to me, everything I say I do, I do. I am. I am. God comes alongside of a teenage girl. Comes alongside of a a man who's sick. Comes alongside of a man with a sick son. Comes alongside of a man of whose son is a paralytic. He comes alongside of a leper. He comes alongside of a tax collector. He comes alongside of a broken-hearted father. He comes alongside of a penniless widow. He comes alongside of a refugee, a notorious sinner, an adulterer, an addict. He comes alongside the hopeless. He comes alongside the ashamed. He comes alongside the guilty, and he comes alongside the victim. He comes alongside people like you and people like me, and he says, would you write these things down because these are as good as done. These are as good as done. All you have to do is look at the story that I've been writing. Look at the story. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Making all things new. So real life, the point is this, your story, your story makes context, makes sense in the context of this story. This is, this is your story. The best thing that you can do is to realize this is your story. And over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to, we're going to dive into the Paul, the the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, We're going to look at Uh, ways that we can articulate our stories as we look at his life. But just right here, right now, as we take this journey together, as we start this, I just want to reassure you of something. I don't know what brought you here. I've been your pastor now for seven, eight months, pushing nine months. There's still people I've met for the first time today because of the size of our church. I don't know why you walked in here today. I don't know why you logged in online today. I don't know those things. But I can tell you this. God knows exactly why you did. And he also knows exactly where you are in the story. And it doesn't surprise him. And wherever you are in the story, he will meet you exactly right there. His timing is perfect. His ways are perfect. So no matter where you are right now, God is right there with you, coming alongside of you, helping you to see your life is so much bigger than you thought it was. Your life is a part of something so much grander than you could ever imagine, ever imagine. I just want to ask you over the course of the next three weeks, would you keep your heart open? 
to what God might want to say to you, what God might want to show you. And I want to encourage you today. Um, it's been about 38 minutes, just so you know, if you were like keeping track, feeling pretty good about myself right now. But listen, I get pretty passionate about certain things, particularly that passage in Revelation. That's because I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous for me, I'll be honest. I want to experience unbrokenness. I want you to experience unbrokenness, and I want to be a part of a movement that brings unbrokenness to the world, unapologetically. I'm so excited to go on this journey with you, and I'm so excited to hear your stories as we articulate those over the next three weeks. Can we take that journey together? All right, I'm going to ask you to stand. Father, I just, I come before you today, and it's my prayer that, um, it's my prayer, Father, that people didn't hear my words, but heard yours, and um, you are active, you are at work in the lives of these people. We believe in your grace that goes before us and prepares our hearts to hear what we need to hear, and I trust that that has taken place today, that uh, we've heard what we needed to hear but today, as we begin to think through what it means for us to share our story, to talk about our story, to actually write our story down, I pray that you would help us see where we are in this story. But maybe even more than that, see how your great love, Father, intercedes and injects itself into our story so that we might, Father, live unbroken lives. So that we, Father, might be able to glorify you in everything that we say and everything that we do. Father, we love you. I pray that you be with your church as we leave this place, as we go about our week. Help us, Father, to live according to your word, but also just to radiate your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate it.